Hey, I'm Linda Mariano and it's time for a nutrition special. Coming up in this episode of Science with Dr. Carl, you'll be hearing from Professor Claire Collins. You'll find out about loads of nutritional stuff, including vegan diets and the use of supplements, the advantages of having a floating poo, and how a keto diet will make your breath smell like nail polish. Let's get into it. And it's that time of the week where we talk science with Dr. Carl. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Dr. Linda. Fabulous to be back. And we're very lucky today to be able to talk not just sciencey goodness, but foodie sciencey goodness. We've got Professor, not just Doctor, but Professor. Yo, nice background there. Professor Claire Collins, University of Newcastle, who has written 80 articles for The Conversation. Now, The the Conversation is the website. It rocks. They're easy to understand. And Claire has written 80. And how many viewings have your articles had? Um, 8.8 million readers, something like that. My God. It's a lot. Yeah, but it is a lot. And You've it, got a lot of knowledge. She's got love a lot of knowledge. Well, and I love sharing it with people. Mm. That's what's fun. Yeah. So if you have any nutrition questions, bring them on on 0439 757 Shall we get into it? Doctor now. and Let's Professor. Do it. Okay, we're kicking off in Canberra this morning with a question from Dr. Jess about the vegan diet. What is it? Dr. Jess. Hi, doctors. Um, I just wanted to know if a vegan diet is good for you and is it necessary to take supplements like B12, vitamin D and omega-3s? Uh, a vegan diet can be good for you, but it dep- you don't have to follow a vegan diet to be healthier. There are some particular risks. So when you're on a vegan diet, you don't eat any animal products at all. So no meat, um, that's the obvious one, but no fish, chicken, no milk. So the nutrients that are limiting is particularly vitamin B. Now, vitamin B is only found in animal products or in fortified non-animal products. In Australia, the most common one will be one of the soy milks. So if you're using a soy or nut milk, make sure it's got vitamin B12 in it. You need that because you need vitamin B12 for your nerves to make DNA um, and you will end up with a vitamin B12 deficiency eventually. When you first become vegan, it won't happen straight away because you do have a little bit of a store in there. The other nutrients that are limiting on a vegan diet, calcium. The biggest source of calcium is dairy products. So you need a calcium fortified nut or soy milk. And then it is true, the long chain fats, omega-3s, they're found typically in fish. You can get them from things like flaxseed, and walnuts, so that's another useful um, useful product. And then the other big one is iodine. Iodine, seafood is the biggest source in Australia and uh, salt is iodized in Australia. We've had an increase in iodine deficiency, which leads to a goiter. And we used to get enough iodine from cow's milk because when they cleaned the milking machines, they used things called iodophores. They now use chlorinators. So such a shortage of iodine, it's been put into bread making flour, um, an extra need for iodine because of not eating fish in, in vegan. So, but like I said, you don't have to be a vegan to be healthier. You can have healthy vegetarian patterns. You can have healthy vegan patterns. You can have unhealthy vegetarian and vegan patterns, but those are the four key nutrients to watch for. And you need an extra level of monitoring of those when you're vegan as opposed to non-vegan or vegetarian. I was astonished when you said we're seeing an increase in iodine deficiency. Isn't this going back to the dark ages? I mean, it's bad enough having vaccinatable diseases coming back, but 
just simple foods? Yeah, it is like going back to the dark ages in many ways. And the iodine content of food depends on the soil. So even for vegetables, they can have iodine in them. But if you live in a region where the soil is particularly low in iodine, like parts of Tasmania, they've seen an increase in goiter. And now there was enough pockets of this happening around Australia that and enough people developing iodine deficiency. And if your mum has iodine deficiency when you're pregnant, because iodine is needed to develop the brain, you can, in some parts of the world, cretinism mm-hmm. is a condition associated with congenital iodine deficiency, meaning your mum didn't have enough iodine. Uh, now, I've heard that if you're getting your food from croplands, where the croplands are close to the coast, enough sea spray will blow in to carry the iodine. But if you're way inland, the chances are less. I think it's also more likely that some of the, that soil would be fertilised from sea grasses. So seaweed contains iodine, oh. for example. So does that mean a vegan can go out and pig out on seaweed and they're both vegan mm. and getting their iodine? Yeah, you'll get some from, from nori. Okay. But it is... If you're vegan, it's worth making sure your GP knows because they probably would check things like your um, your thyroid status because your thyroid uses the iodine and that when it becomes enlarged, that's called a goiter. They would also check your B12 status, which is pretty easy to do. And they'd also check your iron status, particularly if you're a woman, because that's like the most obvious one. You don't get uh, the best absorbed um, iron comes from red meat. Mm. So you certainly can, you can be healthy being a vegan and being a vegetarian, but it's not automatic. You just need that little bit extra level of effort. And just one last question. Say Jess is a vegan and you just mentioned there where you would normally get your kind of flaxseed oil from, say, if you were having a portion of fish at night and you said you get it from having actual flaxseed or having walnuts. walnuts. Is is it the sort of thing where you need to have the equivalent of a bag of walnuts to get the same amount as one piece of fish? Because I often think about that as well. I'm not going to have that much fish this week or something like that, oh, if I have a couple walnuts every day, is that going to give me enough? Well, nuts are interesting because they're, they're a food that's back in, back in vogue, but you'd need like more like around 30 grams, which is like the palm of your hand. If you used your hand as a little cup, it's more like about that many. I did write an article on these nutrients mm. on veganism for the conversation so you can find a bit more information to come back to there. But it is tricky, but it, it definitely can be done. But you've got to be more aware than a non-vegan of of what you, of what you're eating, so you don't don't get those nutrient deficiencies. Fantastic! Thank you for your question, Dr. Jess. We'll jump to Frankston in Victoria with Dr. Luke. What is your nutrition science question? Yeah, hi. I was just wondering. I'm constantly hearing that eating too much red meat can be harmful to your body, and I was just wondering if the same applies to white meats like chicken or fish. There's not as much research that's been done on uh, chicken, there has been some research done on fish because it contains this omega-3 fats. They're the long-chain fatty acids and what they work like in your body is a little bit like antifreeze in in a car, essentially. So long-chain fats come from fish, especially cold-water fish that, you know, live in the Arctic circles and fish that have a high fat content. They stop the fish's blood from freezing. They have that same effect in our body in terms of they make our blood move and flow and less likely to stick and clot. They also help with keeping your heartbeat fairly regular. In terms of red meat, 
the the increased risk for bowel cancer goes up from around 450 to 500 grams per week. So small serves of red meat three times a week, there's no extra adverse consequences, it seems, from the research, but high intakes increase the risk for bowel cancer because some of those amino acids make it to your colon mm. and get broken down there and encourage the growth of nasty back, nasty bugs that cause cancer. And there was a report a few weeks ago saying, hey, uh, red meat's uh, okay to eat in any quantity, but then it turns out that there was a conflict of interest. Well, I think the bigger issue with those studies, more so than the conflict of interest, I actually think that was beaten up a little bit, mm-hmm. was in how they interpreted the same science. So we had the ah. same set of studies being interpreted by the World Cancer Research Foundation and the American Cancer Association and all the dietary guideline makers in the world saying, hey, look at this, processed meat, there's no safe amount, your risk for bowel cancer goes up from zero and the World Cancer Fund also saying, you know, from around this half a kilo of red meat, your bowel cancer risk goes up from zero. They're saying this is a recommendation to reduce Mm -hmm. and this other group two weeks ago saying oh, well, we're going to overlay that with the fact that they're observational studies, so the studies are automatically lower quality, but we can't do a randomised control trial and put people on a potentially cancer-causing diet and wait and see if they get cancer. And then they did another study where they said, well, people won't like that advice to cut down on their meat and they won't like it if we tell them don't eat processed meat or cut down, so we're going to lower the recommendations again. So the actual numbers in their study are the same, saying increase poorer health if you have really big red meat intake above half a kilo and with processed meat, but they grade it down. And that's a bit like saying, oh, smokers won't like it if we come out with a recommendation to say don't smoke. So we're going to grade down the recommendation (sighs) to cut, cut down on smoking. So the evidence is still the same. Their results show the same. So try and keep to half a kilo for red meat and avoid processed meat and go for wonderful things like cheese, eggs, canned canned tuna, other interesting sandwich fillings. Dr Sally from Sydney, what's your question? Hi doctors, my question is why do some fruits make my mouth itch especially if they're not ripe? What fruit? Fruits for me, often it's like banana rock melon, um, occasionally watermelon, occasionally kiwi fruit. But I've spoken to other people and they say different fruits have the same effect on them. Well, I'm not a dietitian and I would have said acid things and you're saying banana. Over to the expert, Professor Claire. Yeah, it's unusual, but there is a thing called oral allergy syndrome where you actually are having an allergic reaction in your mouth but not in the rest of your body. Super Mm. unusual and super weird. It can be a sign that you have other types of allergies. So check with your GP whether you should see an immunologist. If you have any swelling of your tongue or your mouth, that can be really dangerous because that could block your airways. So you should go and, you know, like get it checked out. But really uncommon, so you're unlucky, but it is a thing, oral allergy syndrome. There's some talk as to whether for some of those fruits it's actually being triggered by a pollen that might be more common at certain types of the year. Mm. You wouldn't think that for banana, so I think you definitely ought to go and have a little bit of a chat to your GP and get it sorted out. With a with an unripe banana, some of it can just be that that's a bit dehydrating on your tongue. Yeah, so it, it goes a bit chalky. Feels, yeah. yeah, so it feels like it's drawing all the liquid out of the surface of, of your tongue. But oral allergy syndrome is a thing and does need to be checked out.
Wow. Ah. Thank you, Dr. Sally. Dr. Jesse from Penrith, what's your question about frozen vegetables? Hey, doctors. I was just wondering if the frozen vegetables that you buy in a bag from the supermarket have the same nutritional value as fresh vegetables. Sometimes what you buy as frozen can actually have a higher nutritional value. Higher? Yeah, because many vegetables, they're picked from the farm and the freezer factories down the road. So they're uh, picked and snap frozen, whereas by the time you buy them fresh, they've gone to the regional market, they've come to ah. the, the shop near you, and then they're not actually as fresh. But v- a lot of the vitamins that are water-soluble, they're lost by heat, light, and water. Mm-hmm. So the best way to retain the vitamins is cook them as short as possible and minimum amount of water. And there's still reasonable amounts of, of nutrients in there. So definitely worth eating. That's the best way to get them. Mm. And then cooking them from the shortest time, steaming or microwave. And But in general, go for fresh vegetables if you can? No, no actually. you can. No, if you, don't, no? if you don't mind the taste, there's a difference in taste and texture. Whatever's the most convenient and whichever fits your budget. If something's out of season, it's going to be cheaper to buy it um, frozen mm-hmm. than it is to buy fresh from the supermarket. So having, having a mix and um, go for what you like to eat and will eat a lot of. And that goes wow. for vegetables and frozen fruits? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the same. Yeah, the same because most frozen fruits, they're not they, – frozen produce generally has nothing added to it. It doesn't have salt or doesn't have extra sugar added to it. Hey, Dr Jimmy in Melbourne, you've got a question about gluten intolerance. Yeah, that's right. I was just wondering if you can overcome uh, gluten intolerance. If it's, you probably can't. The main advice with gluten intolerance is to still have that medically checked out the way you would if you had a diagnosed gluten intolerance called celiac disease. Celiac disease is an allergy between your gut lining and the gluten, which is a protein found in wheat, rye, uh, oats and barley. And you need to restrict that lifetime because every time you reintroduce the gluten, you will actually have that allergic reaction, but in your gut. So if you could put your gut under a microscope, it's not smooth like a garden hose when you open a garden hose. It actually looks like a hairbrush. And the hairbrush, those little brushes are called villi and the digestive enzymes line up and down the villi. So when the gluten allergy reaction it flattens off all the villi and you lose those enzymes. So you can't digest some carbohydrates. You can't digest the lactose, which is the carbohydrate in milk. And you can't absorb things like iron. So typically there's iron deficiency anemia associated with undiagnosed celiac disease. A really good spot to go and look at is the Celiac Australia Society. Their website, they've got lots of information. You need to see a gastroenterologist and have it sorted out whether you have celiac disease or one of the gluten intolerances that need medical management. Now, in the old days, from my reading, celiac disease used to appear early on and then it would stay with you. So as a child, you would realise that you had it. But now it seems to be coming later in life. Yeah, and I think this is a... I think in the years to come, we're going to see this investigated a lot more. I've read some really interesting studies saying part of the explosion or the increase in celiac and gluten sensitivities could be due to some other factors that are being added into our food. So have you ever seen those processed meats? You know how they're so smooth, you know, when they get sliced up by the slicing machine in the deli? Yeah. You you never know that they're made of little chunks. They're like the real solid meat. Yeah. So the way they get 
glued together is the meat is treated with this enzyme called transglutaminase, so meat glue. It's often meat used glue. in it's yeah, it's often Yum. transglutaminase. <laughs> it's often used in like gastronomy, you know, when you want to glue proteins together and make some weird shaped thing. Well, there's one theory that even though transglutaminase is not on our food labels, it doesn't have to be in Australia. It's often used to pre-treat foods before they're turned into foods. So you can't tell. And there are some studies in animal work suggesting that maybe some of these enzymes actually remain active and are affecting our villi, thereby making us more sensitive to things like gluten. So watch this space. But to me, it's another reason not to eat processed meat and not to eat ultra processed foods because we don't know whether or not it's been treated by transglutaminase. My son can eat his own body weight and bacon on a weekend. Yeah, that's that's not good news, Carl. Okay, <laughs> just checking. Yeah, yeah, you might want to swap that for some mushrooms and grilled tomatoes and <laughs> steamed asparagus and I think you should do that. Okay. Is it true and is, is it true that that tomatoes are better for you when they're cooked? Well, tomatoes Lycopene is partly responsible for some of the red colour in tomatoes Mm. and it does get released better from the cell walls uh, when it's cooked and also in the presence of a little bit of of oil helps you absorb it more. So, yep, some nutrients increase when you cook the foods. Dr. Sharnell from Canberra, popular question, what is it? I just have to ask the dirty questions in life. Are your poos meant to sink or are they meant to float? They are actually meant to float. Floaters means you've got a very high fibre diet. But if they float but like dissipate, like broken up, it may be that you actually have diarrhoea or a malabsorptive condition. But fibre is what helps make your bowels a good consistency. There's a criteria for ranking what what your bowels look like, your stools look like. And um, it's called the Rome criteria. So if you Google that and it goes from things like looking like little pebbles to nicely formed sausages and that's what it should look like, number two should look like look like sausages. How, how do you spell Rome? R- um, now, oh, R-O-M-E? I think it is, think it is R-O-M-E. Look up bowel consistency uh-huh. or stool consistency and you'll, you'll come across a nice pictorial scale of what your bowels should look like and to how be does, healthy. And how does that relate to the Bristol stool scale, which you can find oh, on Wikipedia? I made a mistake. It is the what? Bristol stool scale. Oh, so it's oh, yes. Yes. yes, you're I've, right I've and I'm wrong. There is, there is the Rome IV I'm wrong. No, criteria. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Ah, okay. That's for a, di- a diagnosis of IBS. I'm wrong. Wrong and Carl's right. Oh, Dr. Carl. Okay. There so, so it's the, the Bristol stool scale? Yeah. Yeah. Look, at, look it up. Yeah. Yeah. The Bristol sco- stool, stool scale. Dr. Charnel, scale. that's your homework. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Rank your friends. Uh, Dr. Rossi in Port Macquarie, what's your question about eggs? Good morning. Um, just wondering if we should consume eggs based on what I heard that parasites and bacteria live off them in your stomach. Uh, most of the eggs that you buy, like eggs are now in the refrigerator, so they can be contaminated because of the chicken poo when the e- when the chickens lay the eggs. So keep them in the fridge, make sure there's no, um, you know, chick- chicken poo on the outside and that should be fine. And eggs are one of those foods that are actually back in favour and okay. okay but he, he was saying, he was saying that there's they're food for parasites and bad guys in your gut? Um. No, not no, not really. It's more they're more likely to be contaminated with salmonella, okay. which is the bug that's in chicken poo. But if you cook them, that will kill that. But you you don't want chicken poo to be on the eggs when you're using them. And mm-hmm. just 
quickly, one last question about eggs, although I'm sure we'll probably get more over the course of the hour. But just then you said keep your eggs in the fridge. But I remember once reading this thing about like you see them in the supermarket aisles and they're not in the fridge so you don't need to keep them in the fridge. You know, they actually are in the refrigerated section at the supermarket now. Oh, they are? Yeah, yeah. And the supermarkets, modern supermarkets are air-conditioned as well. So if you look, think about home, most people don't have an air conditioning running 24-7, so definitely keep them in the fridge and they'll last a bit longer. Fantastic. Dr Kirby in Brisbane, what's your question? Hey, guys. I was just wondering what causes lactose intolerance and why can you actually get it at an older age? Like I know I was 18 when I got it, but what actually causes that and why aren't you born with it? Well, I'll give you a bit of the science background. So there are things called sugars and there's a whole bunch. So your basic sugar is a bunch of five or six carbon rings and that can get absorbed across your gut wall fairly easily. And then there are sugars, still called sugars, which are two of them stuck together. And one of them is lactose and it has two sugars. One's called galactose and the other one's glucose. So you've got these two sugars stuck together and they can't get across your gut wall. When you are a baby, inevitably, across the whole world, you have the enzymes in your gut that can split those two sugars that are in lactose into two single sugars, the galactose and the glucose, goes into your gut, across your gut wall, into your bloodstream, nutrition. And you lose that as you get older. Now for the history lesson. 7,000 years ago in Hungary, a mutation happened which allowed people as adults to break that lactose apart into the two smaller sugars. And this gave them a tremendous advantage, which was that you could have a cow. And at the end of the year, you would have got as much nutrition from the milk as you would by killing the cow, but you still had the cow. And the cow did not try to eat the sort of food that you wanted. You couldn't eat grass. So that was a tremendous advantage. And then it arose 4,000 years ago independently in different parts of Africa and started spreading across Asia. At the moment, one third of the world, the minority, can do this as adults. They can have a milkshake. Two thirds of the world, the majority, cannot have a milkshake. And that's the scientific background, Professor Clare. Yeah, there are other reasons why you might lose lactase as you get older. But if you're only 18, you probably want to know was, did you actually not have lactase there all along or have, ah. you, actually, or have you actually lost it? There was a group of researchers who did an experiment to look at how much lactose can somebody tolerate without getting diarrhoea even when they're lactase deficient. Ah. And they found they could handle about 12 grams, you know, which is like about three quarters of a cup of milk. So you could probably handle milk in tea even though you don't have lactase. But if you had a, a milkshake, you'd end up with some sort of um, tummy upset. When you get sick, like we were talking about the villi before, how mm. they get flattened, if you get a really bad dose of gastroenteritis, that can also knock the lactase enzyme off some of your villi. Lactase sits on really? the very tip of the villi and so it's the most easily lost when you, when you have a stomach upset. But... So long as you're not lactase deficient like you are, for those people, the lactase will come back with continued exposure to milk. You can induce the num- you know, it to reappear. So In the villi, like little hairs on a hairbrush lining yeah, your gut. Yeah, and they have all the digestive enzymes for carbohydrate lining up and down the sides of them. Ah. But the, the most sensitive one is lactose because it's on the very uh, lactase, which is the enzyme that digests lactose. So you're unlucky if your lactase 
deficient and you can't tolerate lactose, the milk sugar, but you should be able to handle little bits like in a cup of tea. And And were you just saying you can build it back up again? If Mm. not, if you have no lactase. If you've lost your lactase, like many populations do, particularly Asian populations, you can't bring that back. But if you've lost it acutely because you've had a stomach upset, gastroenteritis and vomiting bug, then that and you're temporarily lactose intolerant, you can bring that one back. And so lactose, O-S-E, yeah. is the sugar and yeah. lactase, A-S-E, that's... Is the enzyme that breaks the bonds in lactose, the wow. sugar. Speaking of your stomach and getting over things and remembering things, Dr. Rob from WA, what's your science question? Good morning, guys. Uh, does the stomach have a memory? If, if you uh, overeat or undereat, can that be habit-forming? It, it definitely oh. can be habit-forming, but probably not because of a stomach memory, probably because of your old, your overall metabolism and physiology. But your stomach can change size. There has been research done on that in the most recent years showing that your stomach can expand if you continually eat um, big meals and big volumes of food and that, in fact, your stomach can get smaller if you eat small, consciously eat smaller meals over a very long period of time. So that would mean your stomach would be start sending signals to your brain to say you've had enough to eat once you had shrunk your stomach, for example. Ah. What about people that get their stomachs stapled? Well, then it's mechanically made smaller. Uh-huh. One of the most common bariatric surgeries these days is um, uh, where part of the stomach is actually removed. And that definitely helps people in terms of managing hunger because people who struggle with f- feeling hungry all the time, that, can, that drives you to continue to eat. So for many people who've had bariatric surgery, which is the broad name for the surgeries to reduce stomach size, say the best thing about it is not feeling hungry 24-7 and that must be a real challenge to live with that. So bariatric surgery is really the only thing we have at the moment that can address that constant, constant hunger. But there's also another weird effect, very rare, but I came across this story in The New Scientist of a woman who was a bit overweight because she just loved drinking some sort of sweetened fake tea, you know, not, not, not English breakfast tea, but anyway, she loved her sweetened tea and she had some immediately after the bariatric surgery and f- from then and forever after, it tasted like fish. Oh, right. The taste of the tea had changed after her bariatric surgery, after the re- the mechanical shrinking of her gut. The taste of quite a few foods had changed, but I don't think this happens to everybody. Well, that's a very interesting story and I haven't heard that before. So maybe that helped her with then switching to a different drink. Mm. Mm. And one last thing, is it true that, I remember reading this once before, that it takes your brain 20 minutes for like the food to kind of communicate to your brain and then tell you that you're full so you shouldn't be rushing through meals in the space of five or ten minutes. Yeah, there definitely is some science around that because you get mechanical feedback so the nerves start saying, hey, there's food coming into the stomach and then as the food starts emptying out of your stomach once it's mulched up or if it's a liquid, it drops into your duodenum which is small intestine, you get more nerve feedback from there and you start to get some chemical feedback from there as well and that's they've got to travel up to your brain. So it, it's true, it, it's not immediate. So if you eat really fast, 
you might have already, oops, I didn't mean to eat that much because you haven't got the messages yet to your brain from your stomach and your intestines. Would this be sort of handy in a pre-agricultural society, especially when food was rare and so if there's any dinosaur there, eat it all up as fast as you can, even when you're full, because it might not be there tomorrow? Yeah, that's, that definitely could have been a survival advantage, that if you were a fast eater, but also in you know in a crowded situation and first in, best dressed, whoever's the fastest eater is going to get the most food. And, you know, like um, I grew up in a big family, so I learned to eat pretty fast. And <laughs> um, so, But it doesn't serve us well in this current generation where there's so many energy-dense foods that taste amazing, but they're actually so processed and so full of sugar, fat, salt mm. that it's really easy to overeat them. Hey, Dr. Josh from Tassie, you've got a question about a food that a lot of us eat every day. What is it? Yeah, g'day guys. Um, I'm just wondering, does consuming toasted bread give you less energy than uncooked bread? Well, I used to think that toasted bread was good because my father said it was good because if you'd had food poisoning, maybe the burnty bits would suck up the toxins that the bacteria might be putting out. But I was always worried about it because if you burn anything, you can make some bad chemicals. So if you just get some leaves from a tree and burn them, you will create dioxins, which are terrible chemicals. Professor Claire. Yeah, gee, where to start? There's so many interesting things to say about um, toast. So when you burn any food and you produce that charcoal, charcoal, there's a, there's a fad diet going around at the moment called the charcoal detox because charcoal is actually used to try and um, pull drugs out of your system when people have overdosed, for example. But it can also absorb medications and nutrients out of food. Then burnt things can contain these compounds called heterocyclic amines, which are cancer-causing. So in terms of the toast, if you've turned your toast to charcoal, well, you're not going to digest and absorb that, but it's not good for you. So I don't think it's worth eating burnt toast in order to eat less kilojoules. I would say go for less toast that's just lightly toasted rather than burnt. So, you know, theoretically... The answer to that one is actually true. There is less kilojoules. Mm. But from every other reason I can think of, mm. I would not recommend eating burnt toast. We'll jump into Kim from Bathurst. What is your question, Dr. Kim? Hi, guys. Um, I'm just wondering, kids who are 10 years or younger that are vegetarian, should they be taking any sort of supplement? Uh, it depends on the type of vegetarian. So I'd discourage being vegan because it takes so much more it's possible but it takes so much more extra extra effort but if you're a vegetarian if you're what's called an ovo lacto vegetarian that means you're having milk so it's easy to get the calcium it also means that you're eating things like eggs so it's easy to get the protein the main nutrient that's limiting is iron now you can get iron from things like baked beans and lentils that's called non-heme which just means non-meat iron and you'll get more absorb more of that if you have a food that's rich in vitamin C at the same time, really interesting. So red capsicum or fruit salad or any fresh vegetables that contain vitamin C. Monitor their growth and well-being. The more strict you are, as in the less animal products, the more likely it could trigger other things like B12 deficiency, iodine, uh, iodine deficiency as well. So the main thing is to monitor growth and be a ovo-lacto, a milk and egg eating vegetarian rather than 
um, rather than a, a vegan because it's it's much, much harder to meet all your requirements. But what if they have a cup of tea? With milk in. They wouldn't be drinking tea if they're only 10. Yeah, well, my daughter was drinking tea and apparently there's something in tea that interferes with the absorption of... Yes, so there are phytates in tea and mm. they interfere with the absorption of iron. So if they are a cup of tea drinking 10-year-old, yeah. which I don't Probably. actually recommend, then don't have cup of tea with cup of tea with meals. And you want to make ca- it... Do you mean caffeine, caffeinated tea? Like no, an English no, just, or do you mean like herbal teas or... Just most teas have these things called phytates in them. And when you have a very high fibre diet, you get more phytates and it's harder to absorb the iron that's in vegetarian foods in the presence of that. So really? having... Yeah, so having oh. vitamin C is helpful for absorbing the iron uh, definitely that that's the key thing and um, and then just making sure it's a healthy vegetarian diet there was an interesting study this was done in adults where they categorized them as to whether they had a healthy vegetarian diet or they had an unhealthy and ate lots of processed foods and there's no prize for guessing who lived more healthily and had yeah. better cl- blood cholesterol it was the healthy vegetarian so unprocessed foods is best so Will Anderson is proud of the fact that he's a vegetarian and lives off Mars bars. Well, we'll that, that's an experiment. <laughs> we'll have to wait. <laughs> we'll have to wait for the results of that n equals one experiment, won't we? Speaking of veggies, Tamara from Cranbourne, what's your debate? Hi. So my boss is um, determined that carrots do not have skin, and I say that they do have skin. Um, and we're wondering if it's more nutritionally. Uh, beneficial if we keep the skin on, which oh. I think it has, or if we remove it. Oh, like whether you peel or you unpeel your, yeah. or you not peel your carrot. Like, yeah. like the things your parents tell you, eat the skin, it's the best part. Isn't that true? No, Claire. not necessarily. Like, you know, there's some theories that there's more nutrients un- under the skin, but mm. I'm with you, carrots have got a skin because it's a slightly thicker layer of cells. So even though it's not a skin like a banana skin that's really thick, there is that slightly thicker coating on the outside of a carrot. So in terms of nutrients, you lose the most when you boil the hell out of them. So if you steam them or eat them raw, you will get more nutrients than if you leave the skin on and you boil them till they're a, a mush. Right. There you go. Tamara, we're on your side. Yay, thank you so much, guys. (laughs) Hey, uh, Dr. Sam from Mernda in Victoria, what's your science question? Hi, doctors. Uh, My question is uh, what are the benefits or pros and cons to the keto diet? Yeah, so I don't recommend a keto diet. The main reason is like my background, I started my life as a dietitian, as a paediatric dietitian, where we looked after kids who had uncontrolled epilepsy and the last resort was to put them on a keto diet. So that was like 20 or 30 grams of carbohydrate. One toast slice of bread has 20 carbohydrates. So those grams of carbohydrate. So the theory, if you can reduce the amount of glucose in your blood by cutting carbohydrate, you force your body to burn fat and run on fat and you produce these things called ketones and they cross the blood-brain barrier and they actually inhibit your appetite. So that's why there's a lot of popularity as a, as a weight loss strategy. And um, But the downside, when you cut out carbohydrate, that's bread, breakfast cereal, most fruits, many vegetables... And so you end up with an imbalance in terms of the nutrients that you're consuming and you put yourself on a trajectory for um, worse health long term. So it's almost impossible to have a high fibre um, diet that's, that's a keto diet. Amazing website in the US 
for all the people who must follow a keto diet for health reasons called the Charlie Foundation. So if you want some examples of food plans, look at that and also look at the huge list of supplements that you need to take to adhere to a keto diet. I actually think that a lot of people who just follow a high fat, low carb diet go, hey, yeah, I'm keto. And I think they're really offending the people who are having to do it for medical Mm -hmm. reasons. You know when you're burning ketones because your breath smells like nail polish because acetone is one of the ketones and it's really, um, it it evaporates really easy. So as your blood comes through your lungs, the acetone comes into your lungs and you exhale it. So So if you were strictly following a keto diet, you mean your breath would smell like acetone? Yeah, you'll smell like nail polish. People will be saying to you, you got nail polish on. Wow. Go, so next nah. time someone brags in their active wear, I'll like be like, give us a whiff, mate. Yeah, and if they don't uh, smell like I'll me, like, nail lying. polish, they're actually not on a, ke- on a real keto diet. Uh-huh. And, and you're saying that one of the main problems is that you're missing out not just on the macronutrients, the fats, the proteins, the carbohydrates, but the micronutrients and then all the essential fibre as well. Yeah, that's right. All the phytonutrients, some of the vitamins and minerals and some of the trace elements as well, Ah. as well as all the range of fibres across all of those high-carb foods. Wow, fascinating. Dr Ant from Albert Park will jump to you with a nutrition question about fat. Oh, good morning. Um, How are you? Good, thank you. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Um, my question is: If you're having, if one's having a barbecue in Antarctica, would you be, would it be recommended to eat all the fat that uh, you would normally throw away from your chops and and your bacon, etc.? If you're living in that cold climate, it's tricky. Um, when I was last in Antarctica, the chef uh, was actually the on the road chef for Prince and Madonna in his previous career. Mm. Secondly, it all depends what you're doing. Um, I came across a collection of women who hired an Aleutian 76, landed at the coast of Antarctica and spent 30 days skiing inland. They knew it was coming, so they deliberately overate and put on 20 kilograms of fat per human female. While skiing... They lost one kilogram of body weight a day while trying to eat as much chocolate as they could. They still ended up in at the South Pole, 10 kilograms underweight. So if you're lying around in the spa, that's one thing. If you're, if you're skiing, that's another. Hey, uh, that brings us pretty much to the end of this nutrition special for science with Dr. Carl and Professor Claire Collins today. Claire, thank you so much for being our special guest this week. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And can I just give a plug to the new website we've created for a project? It's called No Money, No Time, one word, .com.au. And we've put the healthy eating quiz in there. You can set up a profile. You can get all kitchen hacks and recipes tailored to your current diet quality and you get to tick what kitchen equipment you've got and we send you recipes that you can make in your kitchen whether you've got two just got a blender and a microwave or you've got the full full pack it's science with dr carl and special guest professor claire collins talking diet and nutrition this episode hope you enjoyed it and if you did please feel free to take a second to rate review and subscribe for way more science episodes i'm linda mariano thank you so much for listening